we got Spider-Man covered. <laughs> should, we, should we talk about JavaScript? This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. They have a terrific lineup of live courses you can attend either online or in person. Their upcoming course is JavaScript Framework Showdown with Brian Holt from Reddit. You can also get recordings of their previous shows like JavaScript The Good Parts, AngularJS, CSS3 In-Depth, and Responsive Web Design. Get it all at frontendmasters.com. This episode is sponsored by Watch Me Code. Have you been looking for regular, high-quality video screencasts on building JavaScript done by someone who really understands JavaScript? Derek Bailey's videos cover many of the topics we talk about on JavaScript Jabber and are up on the latest tools and tricks you need to write great JavaScript. He also covers language fundamentals, so there's plenty for everybody. Looking over the catalog, I got really excited, and I can't wait to watch them all. Go check them out at javascriptjabber.com slash watchmecode. This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to widgmo.com and check them out. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 112 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Jameson Dance. Hi, friends. Aaron Frost. Hello. AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you live from the wonderful world of Mario Kart 8. Joe Eames. Hey there. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. This week, we have a special guest, Brandon Hayes. Hi, from Austin, Texas, which is hot and humid. You want to introduce yourself really quick, Brandon? Yes, for the everybody who doesn't know me. Yeah, for the um, one or two people. Yeah, for the universe. So yeah, I'm Brandon Hayes. I am a software person at a consultancy I help run called The Front Side. It's a cat sultancy. Actually, we're pivoting into cat salting. We primarily focus on Ember.js these days. Uh, historically, a lot of uh, Ruby on Rails and JavaScript, and these days, primarily Ember.js. So Thank you for welcoming me to the Angular podcast. You know, we'll, we'll. <laughs> oh, the trolls begin. Oh yeah. Oh, this is yeah. If you, I hope you guys are ready for that. This is going to be full time. Right. <laughs> We're not usually belligerent with the guests, but I guess today we'll make an exception. <laughs> well, I know you in person, so I feel like the gloves can come off. <laughs> yes, that's right. Don't make me sick my excuse. Google Dev expert on you. <laughs> <laughs> oh jeez. <laughs> All right. Anyway, we, we brought you on today to talk about kind of migrating from the, the jQuery world to the Ember world. Yeah. And, and then somebody else brought something up that I think we probably should cover first, and that would be Mario Kart 8. Um, uh, yes. So I just bought Mario Kart 7 for the 3DS. I do not own a, a Wii U yet, but I am captivated by a meme that is uh, completely, completely taken over my life. And it is the Death Stare Luigi. Oh, it's guys... real. It's so real, man. It's is amazing. It in the, is it in the game? It's in the game. It's so I, good. I want to just meet Death Stare Luigi, not me, not like in a dark alley or anything, but like meet him and shake his hand. It is the most beautiful meme. There's already a subreddit dedicated to it. It's I had no interest in purchasing a Wii U until I seeing this meme come to life, and now I must must own one. <laughs> yeah, you should. You definitely should. <laughs> <laughs> then you, you need to get the ITV app and make two of the panelists happy. <laughs> That's I'm right. On there. I was going to say they missed an opportunity to have like dubstep turn on so you can slow down the replays of the game and they should have just enabled the wob when you go into slow motion. <laughs> That's probably yep. true, but the slow motion I discovered this morning and that was amazing because my sister, hilarious. my sister has the controller and she just like accidentally hit the button and then all of a sudden like it goes, you know, in reverse and we're like, what? Let's see that red turtle shell again and again and again. 
All right. So, yes, that's the most important topic of the day. All right. I'm glad we got it out of the way. <laughs> so I guess it's weird that I've had a lot of attention that I've paid lately to to the topic, to this specific topic. And I, and I care a lot about it, but I try to kind of understand that not everybody's coming to, to stuff from the same place. I know that a lot of people, like people who run podcasts, uh, like Angular a lot. And I, I, I honestly... <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's just going to, it's just going to be like this all day, guys. So I don't have a lot to offer in contrast to Angular because I haven't used Angular a ton. My business partner has and we kind of settled on our preference, but mostly, uh, I started using Ember and it was such an accelerator off of the way that I'd done my JavaScript before. And you probably know this when you start using a tool and it does a lot of work for you and it saves you a bunch of time. It's hard not to kind of fall in love with it. Like it's why I sleep with my power drill under my bed. And yeah, you name your right? kids after it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah, like little rigid and Makita, my yeah. son and daughter. Yep. So, but beca- because I've gotten so much productivity out of uh, building uh, applications with Ember, I've really actually come to in- enjoy it a lot and I've come to enjoy working with it and started realizing I actually learned a pattern for dropping Ember into existing applications from my business partner. And I started looking around and I realized not a lot of people were doing anything like this. Most Ember tutorials you see are you start from first principles, you start from building a single page app. And that's really, uh, that's really their main selling point, right? Is if you're just dropping stuff in, Angular is a really great choice. If you're just starting from scratch uh, on a full single page app, you'll get a lot more, uh, you'll get more of a head start if you start with Ember. And there, you know, th- those are all debatable points, which I look forward to. But in general, that's kind of the perception that I've found in the JavaScript community, certainly between people who will fight and draw blood over which framework to use. So my experience was we liked using Ember and we liked Ember's object model a lot. And then the component system came out and Ember's really worked hard to, at best they can, pattern that after the W3C component spec so that it will eventually have some sort of compatibility with it. And we started realizing you could just take these Ember components and stuff them into the page and start gradually refactoring existing non-Ember applications toward Ember. And we did that for a few clients and it's gone really, really well for them. And for some people, they just stick with one or two components and some people use it as a lever to start bringing in more and more functionality. And eventually, like we've done months of work on something and then at near the end of it, we'll actually drop Ember's router in. Uh, and that's, it's been really fun to build stuff that way. It's, uh, it's a way that not a lot of people think that you can do this without having to start completely from scratch. And so the experience of doing that, that's where I decided I was going to submit a talk proposal and then everything kind of unraveled for me after that. <laughs> so, but I'm, I'm curious to know if you guys, uh, primarily if you guys do server side applications with JavaScript kind of sprinkled into it, or if you primarily do single page applications. I'm a single page guy. I don't know what everyone else. I'm a single page all the way. I tend to do the other. I tend to be the back end with JavaScript sprinkled in. But that's really just because I spend most of my time doing podcasts and client work. And most of the client work doesn't, doesn't they're not interested in or, you know, doesn't call for a front end framework like Ember or Angular. Yeah. So I have a question about this. How do you, if you're refactoring an existing application, how do you know when it's a good choice to refactor it into a different application framework or just clean up the code in general? Because if, I mean, if you have jQuery spaghetti is bad, right? You can write applications without frameworks that aren't jQuery spaghetti. Um, yep. and you can clean up yeah. jQuery spaghetti without 
dropping in an application framework. So how do you decide when to use what? So and that's a really good point because it's, it, I think what happens a lot for a lot of people is they start looking at the tool and it, you can become ex- obsessed with the idea of using this tool, right? It's the tendency of anybody who kind of becomes enamored of something to start looking at everything as a, a potential problem for the solution that you have. And as I was writing this talk, so the way that it wound up going is I thought, okay, well, I'll just take this and I'll draw, you know, create a little talk and I wrote a lightning talk about it and then started writing this talk and actually created this big giant ball of sp- jQuery spaghetti. And it was a nightmare to actually do. Like, and I thought it was going to be really fun to get into this mess. And I highly recommend people go check out this code and, and look at how genuinely bad a JavaScript developer I am. It's pretty embarrassing stuff. It's so what, what wound up happening is I got to this to a really bad point and I talked to a few people about it and it actually was asked that specific question. It's like, wait, do you have to refactor this to Ember or could you just break this up into nice JavaScript, you know, prototypes and instantiate objects off of it? And is there a case to be made for that? And it kind of depends on what you want to accomplish. And so my experience is this was a very stateful interaction. Okay, so I know that I'm moving a bunch of state around. There are nested states involved. So I know that I'm going to be managing nested states. Those states are going to involve what I would consider models of some kind. Those states are acting on things that have a certain type. And it's going to involve a lot of data binding. And so, okay, well, what do you do now? Do you pick up a bunch of different tools that handle all of those different things, or do you start looking for a framework? And I really like leaning up against a framework when I'm doing this kind of work, because a framework actually gives you, when you look at those and it meets those criteria, it's really stateful. There's a case to be made for data binding, meaning like uh, stuff like real-time validation or stuff that you want to automatically update based on these state changes. I really, really like using staying as far away from DOM manipulation as I can and uh, tools like Angular and Ember are really good about helping you get run away from DOM manipulation, which almost all of the pain that I felt as a front-end developer has been messing with the DOM and leaving stuff in an inconsistent state. So that's the case that I would make for using a framework. Now, which framework you use, is that's a totally personal decision. But what I want to make the case for is that Ember is a contender in this space, is that it's, Angular has generally been accepted as the only option people have. And Ember's actually pretty good at this. Those components are really great at managing these things. And I really like Ember's model. I really like the, the Ember model layer and, and the, its object model. So I'm, I'm waiting for somebody to come slit my throat. You're too far away. I'm on my way, <laughs> buddy. Throat slitting. <laughs> We're into more slow deaths right okay. here. Okay. <laughs> Somebody's actually been mercury poisoning me for months. And I figured it was in, te- in anticipation of this eventuality. It's the uh, CFL manufacturers. <laughs> I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to warn Stanley. You're on to him now. So just, just as a, as a note, you cannot kill yourself by ingesting mercury because the lining of your stomach shields you from absorbing it, and it just passes through you. Fun fact. I don't want to know how you know that. Anyway, <laughs> so, um, so when I've done migrations from jQuery spaghetti over to something else, and granted, these are only on my own projects where I have my own jQuery spaghetti, I tend to kind of season it and make it into Ember or Angular spaghetti. In other words, I open up a controller and I jam my jQuery <laughs> spaghetti in there, you know, into its own function. And yeah, then I start to refactor it. But is, is that the right step or is there a better way of doing it? That's actually really great first step. Uh, they finally posted the talks from RailsConf and, and it's out there and it kind of walks people through step by step. One example of making a mess and then kind of digging out of it. But one thing I found in every single time that has been really helpful has been to take the spaghetti code and put it in jail and in some bootstrap function that you eventually start slicing that code out and realizing what parts of that code aren't needed anymore. 
And the most important thing, and I hope this isn't too controversial, the most important thing to me is like, I don't know how personally I feel about test-driven development, but I know I feel very strongly about test-driven refactoring. I do not know how refactoring can be done without good tests. It's just too risky. Everything feels too risky to do a refactor. And so what you do is you, you know, you close the door on the closet and put everything in there and run away. But my experience is it took a lot of work for me to get to where I felt like I could confidently test Ember applications. I think it's more challenging of a testing story than, than Angular historically, than plain vanilla JavaScript as well. I think they're working very hard to make that not be the case anymore. But when we were getting started, I'm just so glad, though, that I spent the time to get a test framework set up so that I could cleanly test these things. So I write a basic integration test around the whole thing and say, hey, when I click this, I should see this. When I click that, I should see that. And these are not tests that touch model layer. It's purely an integration test. So to me, that's the most important step. And it took me just in the one component that I was writing, it took me about four or five hours to get a test suite wrapped around it. But that was so worth it. That four or five hours bought me the confidence to go back through and uh, refactor this application. And so the first thing is, is I put this thing in CodeJail and then have an Ember component stuffed into the page that just does exactly what my old code did. And then I can feel really confident about saying, hey, I wonder if there's a model in here that can hold on to some of this data for me, first and foremost. And as you start pulling code out of this stuff and you rerun your tests and they still pass because when you click something, it does the same thing as it did before. I've never had an experience where I didn't have to refactor my tests a little bit as I go through a refactor to say, oh, actually, I had this class over here, but I'm putting it here now because of reasons. But in general, there's very little changes up front being done to that test suite. And then I can add, you know, add model and unit level tests later if I feel like it. But it's the integration test that saved my life. But how do you how do you test the spaghetti? I mean, so testing jQuery spaghetti is not it's not that hard, actually. I thought it was going to be a lot harder than it was. Because all you're asking for is to say, when I click this thing, so render this thing to the page, when I click this thing, I should see this other thing. So I should, if I change the value to here and click submit, I should see a message saying success. If I put a bad value in there and the validator is supposed to catch it. And what's interesting is I went through and was writing the UI level tests for my JavaScript jQuery, just total nightmare of a mess. I found bugs in the implementation, in my jQuery implementation that I went in and fixed in, you know, inside this gross, complex, like mangled, gnarled state thing. But I was able to actually find and fix a few bugs so that I knew that it was going to be consistent across when I actually did the, did the refactor. So, and people, I don't know if you guys have a preference on test framework. I find them all to be pretty much the same. I don't know if that's blasphemy, but we've used like all the ones that I can think of. And I don't really care about what test framework you use. It really is just a question of making an, uh, in a before, just do something, click on something, put a value in there, and then assert that something else shows up in the DOM. And that style of testing has served me really well. I don't know, there, there may be holes to poke in that, but uh, that style of getting of bootstrapping your test suite by just asserting that you visually can see something that visually different than was there before. So one other question I have regarding moving from jQuery spaghetti over to Ember is that Ember has its own data model things. From what I understand, there's like an official one that I'm not sure if it came out to finally be, you know, here's here's what we recommend you use. I know that there was another one, Ember Data or something like that, that was mm-hmm. kind of the blessed child before. But the <laughs> Yeah, man, the, it's true. And it can be really confusing. And, and there are, I think there are a lot of things in JavaScript land that can feel like that sometimes. And I have people that might, I have friends that will get mad when I say that, where it feels like there's often a paradox of choice. 
And I think Yehuda gave a just a magnificent talk at RailsConf about there's an experimentation phase, and then it's time to kind of shake hands and agree on some shared solutions and move forward on top of those shared solutions. So there's a time to fight over stuff. I mean, that's valuable. But then there's a time where it's time to shift from fighting over stuff and, and then work together on something kind of crappy and make it better. And in Emberland, the data story was really bad for a long time. The first version of Ember data, I still help maintain some apps that are running it. And it was very ambitious, but it's just not that great. I think Yehuda and Tom would be willing to admit that. And uh, certainly they admitted it by starting over. And so there was a, I've been helping run the Ember user group here in Austin for a year and a half now. And it was more a support group than anything for a long time. And we did persistent framework shootouts. Everybody was arguing over Ember persistence framework versus Ember model versus Ember data. And uh, the new version of Ember data is the thing that everybody can agree on. You can use Ember data or you can use just plain Ajax. My recommendation at this point is just to use Ember data. It's been a very long time since I've written an Ajax call against a server. I know that if I set things up correctly and well once, and it's much more adaptable to all kinds of different APIs than it used to be, so if I just set things up at the adapter level once, and that's very little work depending on how resourceful slash restful your API is, there's very, very little work involved in getting that off the ground. And it saves so much time in writing this Ajax layer yourself. I do very, very little of that now. That, that Almost was actually none. the question I had was that in uh, jQuery land, I mean, there, there are some things that make managing the data easier, but in Ember, you just use something like Ember data and it just handles all that for you. So... How do you wind up migrating your, I'm going to grind through all these objects to, hey, I've got this model library that handles all that grinding for me and just gives me a nice interface to it? There are a couple of, man, it's going to be, I think it'll be instructive um, if people want to dig through the code too, but there are a couple of places in, in the code where I actually, you can see where I pull out old Ajax queries and move them to, when I bootstrap the application and insert it to the into the DOM, the first thing I do is I go get the model. I load the model, which will perform, it'll, you know, create a promise that goes out to the server automatically for me, grabs the data off the server and maps it back into a model. And now when I create that component, I have it wrap this model and that data is just sitting there waiting for me. And it's, par- it's part of the component. So I just say, hey, component, instead of making this whole Ajax request, just ask yourself for this piece of data on your model. And so it actually is a great, it's, it, it's, it was the first and easiest way to start removing code out of that code jail. The first thing I did was to identify what models. And the best way I know to start with that is to say, okay, what models am I fetching against the server in these Ajax requests? There's never going to, you'll, you'll never, hopefully you'll never have a one-to-one mapping between your, if you have a server-side model and your client-side models, they're not exactly the same. And even the same named models may uh, represent somewhat different things. But my experience is, is very much that the first and easiest thing to extract are those models and say, okay, this thing is called, in the talk, it was called a, a GIF post, where it has this, it has some data on it. I was going out to the server and asking for that and then mapping that data back and placing it somewhere on the screen. And instead, now I'm putting it in a pool underneath. So the way that, that I visually like have a mental representation of this is there's this pool of data now that I'm gathering. And this model layer, it's completely bound. I have all of this data. Any data that I load goes into this pool of data underneath my application that I can then just ask for. And it's right there. And so I love uh, a pattern I really like in building Ember applications is loading as much data as is reasonable up front. That way, you have lots and lots of stuff to play with. Uh, when you start building these APIs. And it feels, it, it really does change the, the act of programming back from, you know, when you're writing jQuery spaghetti code, it feels like you're just fighting yourself and fighting yourself as soon as you're trying to do more than one or two things with it. 
And when you create this pool of data underneath, it feels like you're just kind of snapping things together. And it encourages you to play and it encourages you to try stuff that you might not have tried otherwise. Anyway, that's the second step, I would say, is extracting those models. And then what? After and you then, extract the models? Okay, so Don't after leave that, hand. <laughs> there is more. After that, I like to I like to pull states out if you're using stateful interactions. And this is where I kind of diverge from Ember, Gospel, and Canon. Um, because in Ember, they give you so many great tools to manage state with routes. If you're doing states in your web application... It might be time to start thinking about uh, something that does that plays with state really nicely. Well, what, hang on, what do you mean by states? Okay, so for instance, in this thing, a small form sounds really simple. Like, hey, like this actually came out of a client request that sounded like it was going to be a ten-minute feature, and it turned into like a two-week nightmare because they said, "Hey, we just want we just want an email submit form. We want somebody to submit their email to invite somebody to come do this." But then you have to think about, okay, so this thing, they said, now the first thing that needs to happen is they don't need to see this unless they click a button. So there's a state where it's not visible. And then there's a state where it is visible. And then there's a state while you're editing it where this thing is either valid or not valid because they need real-time validation that that's an actual email address so people don't submit garbage into the form. And then you click submit, and now there's a loading or in-flight state. And they want to show, hey, this thing is loading. You need to disable the button while this is in flight. And then when it comes back, you need to know whether it was a success or an error. And that sounds really simple until you actually try to build it when you try to build it piecemeal uh, out of jQuery. And usually the stuff we get asked to build is significantly more complex than that. So it's something something as simple as that. You can identify all of those different states and say, hang on. And, and I, I'm a pretty visual thinker. And so it's like, what am I looking at? I'm looking at something that is not visible. Now I'm looking at something that is in a valid state, something that is in an invalid state, something that is currently loading, something that is successful, something that has failed. And so I like to identify those states and say, okay, this thing is pretty stateful. And then there's, um, there are meta states above that, right? In your application that, that Ember's router is really designed to map to, which is a user is viewing an index of posts, but they're also, they click on one of them and they want to show a single post at the same time. So there's a typical, I don't remember the name for that visual pattern. What's that pattern called? Like something master, master detail. detail. That's an extremely common pattern that you'll see in uh, applications built with stuff like Ember. Uh, those type of stateful interactions where you have one state that stays there for a really long time. So I'm kind of, I'm sorry for camping on that term. I don't know a better term to represent state at, in this small detail, like loading, error, that kind of stuff, other than to also call that state. So that's what I'm, I'm referring in this case more to in the small. In the large, by the time you get to this, you know, this large deal where you want to actually update the URL based on the state that you're in, that would be the large state, and that's where you might start considering using something like uh, RouterJS. Have you guys seen that, by the way? RouterJS? Mm-hmm. Is that no, TJ's thing? No, it's, it's extracted from Ember's router. It's Alex Machineer, who I think you guys know I have a long-standing rivalry with, that I manufactured literally out of nowhere, but, but it doesn't matter. It's real now. I don't know what it is, but there's just something about him that I just... I guess if I push the joke too far, you guys won't realize that I'm joking, that I think he's really smart and great, but I... Push it further. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I worry about I worry about publicizing to the community this rivalry, but he is a jerk and he is the worst. And I think people people need to know how bad he really is. He created an extraction of the router library in Ember called RouterJS, and we actually just worked on a project in Backbone uh, where we extracted or we pulled that router in and built it a uh, Backbone app around it, and it's been a total lifesaver. So managing state in the large, if you want to update URLs based on stuff and you're in a server-side framework, I like to let the server handle that for as long as possible. Like, moving to a router 
is probably the last thing I want to do. I would move every inter- interaction that you can underneath the umbrella of man of all of these models, making sure that you have models on the page, making sure that everything is nicely backed, that these states in the small um, for you know managing little bits of loading, little bits of these little small interactions are handled. And then you can wrap it all up. Really, it, at the by the time you're done with this, moving to a single page application is, is as simple as creating a router that replaces what your server used to do, which is just rendering these, you know, however many five or six different pages you had, and then rendering those components inside the views. Like it's it's a one day, two day changeover to kick the remaining server side code out from underneath your app and move to single page application, which is really fun. That's about the most satisfying day of work you'll ever have is removing the server entirely from the equation and realizing that you could just do anything. You could deploy this thing via CDN now. Your options open up so much when you uh, decide to commit to a single-page application. So I'm, so, a, I'm a big fan of SPS. Oh, so we've talked a lot about how to do this specifically with Ember. Um, I wondered mm-hmm. if any of the other people on the show had experience doing it in general or with, with other frameworks and how that compares to Brandon's experience. Well, it certainly sounds like Brandon has uh, put a lot more thought and effort into this particular paradigm, right? Please restate the question. (laughs) So say I don't use Ember, how do I apply this? Or do I just ignore this episode? No, no, no. you got to expand the this to specifically what it was you're asking. Do you mean like refactoring? refactoring. Yeah. Besides refactoring, refactoring, the same thing that episode is about. I got a big jQuery jumbled mess, right? Well, I've, I've done the same exact process with Backbone Knockout and Angular, and from Backbone to Angular. So I've done it a few times, but certainly Brandon's put a lot more thought into like codifying exactly what the process is, right? My experience is always just shotgun-like. You go and you take pieces and you just start overhauling them massively until they're into the new framework. And I would say that as much as, as often as not, it's a matter of Oh, we want to use a new framework because we want features and we're just, this thing is just a mess. We just don't even want to touch it anymore. Right. And so the refactoring is a sanity saving exercise, if not more, if nothing else. Right? So let me ask, let me ask this about that. Do you, have you been able to do this without tests? Cause I literally can't think about how it could be done. Well, yeah, but I wouldn't say it was effective. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to be that guy. I'm not the testing advocate guy. I, and right. arguing over TDD, like uh, the Rails community all wanted to do that for a little while. And it's pretty much close to the last thing on the list I want to do other than actually do the jQuery refactor itself. Well, I find myself on a funny side of the fence because I am the testing advocate guy, right? So I'm a huge fan of TDD, but I've de- definitely been in places where I haven't used testing uh, in even in refactorings. And I've been in plenty of places. And I think you know, so many projects get refactored without tests. By far, the vast majority of refactoring goes happens without tests. It, across all computer science, I have no doubt in the confidence of that statement. The vast majority <laughs> of it happens without tests. Okay, so I should be I should be careful then about saying that it, that it, personally I don't see how it's done. I understand that it is done, but the test coming to your aid is is one of the most wonderful feelings. Like, I think uh, you should be confident to say that if you do it without tests, you're not smart. But whether it can or can't be done is different, right? I, I can confidently say you're probably going to have a bad time. Right, right. Prove it, Joe. Tweet it. Tweet Prove it. that you believe it. <laughs> what do you want me to tweet? I'm going to do it right now. Do it. Prove to us that you believe it that much. What do you want me to tweet? Just whatever. Just whatever. Nine <laughs> comment you'd like to tweet. <laughs> what did you say, Jameson? Tweet Jameson is the best, and, and that'll right. prove it to me, that you believe what you just said. 
I dare you, Joe. <laughs> and as I go through these and, and, and call these steps, I want to be careful about, about making it sound like this is a codification or this it's more like pattern recognition. Like, hey, I've done this like three or four times and I'm noticing that each time I do it, it feels like I'm doing stuff sort of in this order. And so I worry that I mean, recipes get written because people cook a certain way or write their code a certain way. And then people take those recipes and go, okay, these are facts. Like, well, no, this was so, this is a person's experience. Yeah, and but so, I think you're, aren't you missing out on something there? And that is for those who aren't, you know, master chefs, right? What you need is a recipe. And then moving from, I'm just following footprints, you know, somebody else's footsteps and thinking this is okay to becoming the master chef and inventing on my own means I followed somebody's footprints for a while and I started seeing things that the original person either didn't see or just never showed me. And so now I'm off on my own. And for all the other people that never get to that point who are just following in the steps, they're still moving likely in a better place and in a better direction and a better pace than they would have done without your steps. So without your codification. So for you to say, you know, this is a bad thing for me to talk about this stuff and people to just blindly follow it. I don't, I kind of disagree with that. If, you're blindly following it. You're probably the type of person that just doesn't care about enough about that particular thing to invest otherwise. And you'd rather have somebody tell you, just do it this way. And this is a good way. And then accept that and go on with it. And for those who really care a lot, they'll come up with their own thing as they follow you along. Right. We don't need a repeat of the node community. (laughs) Well, so, so the other thing is if you've read uh, pragmatic thinking and learning by uh, Andy Hunt, you know, he talks about the different uh, levels that people go through. And, you know, one of the things he talks about is the beginners, you know, and you, they basically do follow a recipe, you know, and, right. and, and that's how they gain experience because they get in there, they bang against it, they figure out how it works. And yeah, and then as they level up, they figure out, okay, well, you know, this doesn't work under these circumstances or, you know, I, I'm kind of a fan of this other way of doing this particular part of the process. Right. There's a, a really cool Stanford online is doing a class called math versus mathematics. And in their little thing, they say people who took high school math didn't learn algebra or they didn't pass algebra. They passed direction following 101. <laughs> so, which, you know, that, it's kind of that is my math knowledge right there. Right. I know how to do what the textbook says, which, which kind of is misleading to one extent. And that is if you learn to follow directions first and then you learn the underlying principles and stuff and the few teachers that really can get people to just understand the underlying principles right from the beginning, those people are, are, you know, magic, right? Most of us, we're following directions for a while, and then we start, for the subjects we care about, we start to adapt them for our own purposes and learn mastery. And I, th- I think that's a, an incredibly, incredibly well put, a great point. So that then, without a full issuing a full retraction, I can say that my basic, uh, my, my hope is that by kind of laying this stuff out, people can see that there's a path. This is one possible path you can walk. And if you were to walk this path, it is likely that you'll be more likely to find success in taking a a bunch of garbage code that whether you wrote it or somebody else wrote it and walk out the other side feeling relatively confident about your ability to to manage and and scale and add features to a code base. And I think every developer's had that experience. That's why in Katrina Owen's talk that she gave a few years ago that, that refactoring is very therapeutic to walk away from something and know that it's a little easier to use than it was before. That's, it's really nice. And so giving people a set of tools, you know, whether or not they're perfect. And that's the other thing is if you're willing to put this, a recipe out there and that's what open source is all about, right? You put a recipe out there and say, Hey, here's what I think the right thing to do is and let people argue with you about it because there's probably something to learn about how, uh, what somebody else's experience is in it. And so I think really publishing this stuff and giving the conference talk was my way of saying, Hey, 
this is something that we have locked up kind of in our vaults of a pattern that we use to refactor stuff. It may not be perfect, but it works for us. And I would love, we will actually be better at this if we publish this out into the world and let people come poke holes in it. So yay, open source. So no offense, Swift, but uh, <laughs> I think, I think I'm going to be sticking around the, the OSS community for some time. Well put, well put. <laughs> All right, nerds. So, Brandon, have you done refactoring to any other JS frameworks or just Ember? So I've, I've done re- refactoring to just plain JavaScript objects before, but I don't claim to be the world's greatest JavaScript developer, so I can't, I can't vouch for the quality of code that came out of it. So pretty much Ember is my first experience with JS frameworks, and I'm a framework guy, and so it appealed to me in that, in that way. I've actually, we, and, but I can say, we have now taken a backbone application, uh, built from scratch a backbone application. Not actually, we've actually refactored a backbone application, but we did it more wholesale um, because there was a backbone application that had very little code in it um, that didn't really meet at all the business needs. It was basically a proof of concept. So I, I can't really say that I have. I've built things in other frameworks, but I've never really applied this pattern. But what I can say is I'm pretty confident that these patterns, and so I hope that people that, that are fans of Angular or fans of another framework are looking at the patterns, the higher, are able to look at these higher level patterns of the first thing you do is, is extract the code in, in a shell, in a jail that knits itself, and then start pulling the code out of it. And you, and if you can use models to represent as much of that code as possible, uh, abstract away talking to the DOM, you know, Angular and Ember are really good at getting you out of, out of the DOM. I think Backbone, you know, bless Backbone for being kind of <laughs> the first to do this. A backbone talks a lot of talk about getting the truth out of the DOM, and I don't think that that's accurate. My experience with backbone is it's very difficult to get your truth out of the DOM. And so Angular and Ember, in my experience, are much more similar. But then finding the states, uh, then performing more cleanup and having more than one component collaborate. So I think in Angular, that would be like, man, I'm, I'm so terrified to use this word wrong. Am I using transclusion wrong? If I say transclusion, does it? Like when you need multiple Angular directives collaborating? They might need to transclude. Okay, I'm I'm totally using this wrong. <laughs> I think that was I a think, nice way of I saying think you trans- used it wrong. Transclude is like a <laughs> decorator, right? Is not transclusion what we conventionally call decoration? Okay, pretty so, much. So, but you can use multiple Angular directives in concert together against a shared data set. Is that fair to say? Yes. Okay, so I I believe this pattern would really hold strongly for people primarily in Ember and Angular and Backbone if people are willing to do a lot more of the legwork themselves of setting up data binding and stuff like that. And so, yeah, these, these are very applicable patterns. And then finally, the last bit is just any, anything that you were doing in the view, you kind of lose stuff along the way of and using jQuery to show and hide things. I really prefer using CSS for that because CSS can just have a state that is represented. And so you have these sort of stateful things. Sometimes in certain states, things are visible. Sometimes they're invisible. You can use CSS animations, which there's a lot of arguing out there in the world right now about whether those are more performant than JavaScript or not. But I tend to really, I really like them, even though if they're a little more awkward to write than uh, if you were to just say, hey, show me or hide me. Now you have to go into the CSS and say, in this state, it's shown. In this state, it's hidden. Uh, and I, then use animations. I would say that what you're talking about is also probably fairly possible with a knockout and or knockout slash Durandal and possibly even React, right? Yep. Yeah, I would say I haven't used React very much, but I've seen a lot of work from... Uh, Ryan Florence lately trying to basically glue a router onto React, which is kind of the big missing piece. And honestly, for this pattern, I'm not really talking about a router. And so React is probably a good fit. Uh, like I said, my preference, my personal preference is for Ember because I really like the model layer. 
I'm React curious at this point. And I, I like I like a lot of what I'm seeing in the JS community. I feel like we're at the tail end of this experimentation phase. And I really love that people are like, wait, 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 I have one more idea. And they're trying to get their homework in before everybody like kind of coalesces around a single idea or model. So you have Pete Hunt coming in with React, which is like, hey, hey, wait, 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 I have this really cool idea about how to do virtual DOM stuff. And it's incredibly exciting. Like that's exciting work. And it's affecting, I think it's affecting how Ember is doing its job. So it sounds to me, though, like what you're saying, and, and I know that there's more steps in here. I'm going to try to oversimplify maybe a little bit of your process. And that is you're isolating the code, but then you're also identifying states and hooking up binding to those states, right? That's kind of a very key yep. piece in what you're doing. Exactly. So anything basically but backbone, at least plain backbone, um, has that opportunity. Well, all the main ones have binding. All the ones we've talked about have binding. So mm-hmm. all of those would fit. Backbone would if you brought in a binding library. Yeah, absolutely. I think there are probably people who still prefer working in Backbone. Um, I don't know if any of them are in, in this podcast, but when I use, They're when not. I use another, when I use another framework and I come back to Backbone, I get mad because anytime something does something for you automatically, it's like rolling your windows down with an old wind, you know, the, the old, like why we call it rolling the windows crank. down. Yeah. It's like cranking your windows down or even turning your car on with a crank. You know, there are things that just happen for you automatically that you kind of get mad that that convenience has been removed from you. And so I, I don't know that there's a lot in Backbone that I can vouch for anymore. So this segues into something I wanted to talk about in this episode, and that is, have you read the article, uh, No More JS Frameworks by uh, Joe Gregorio? Man, I want to say I want to say I read it, but it, it didn't leave enough of an impression for me to be able to comment on it intelligently. But I can pull it up and argue with you guys about it. Well, he just basically <laughs> makes this thing and says, look, the frameworks that we're building in JS need to start going away because between... Everything that's coming out with ES6, uh, Object Observe, and then what's coming with web components, what we really need is just shivs and then just good JavaScript. Or shims, sorry, not shivs. <laughs> shanks? Shivs, dude. I think you're yeah. of shanks. We, do, we need shanks. <laughs> I could use a few shanks now and then. Shop with a toothbrush, eh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's kind of the gist of it. I'm probably oversimplifying, and if he listens to this, he's probably going to get angry at my oversimplification of his article. But that's kind of it. And he just says, you know, Angular, Ember, Backbone, all this, it's all garbage. We should just be writing. And he makes some good points that one, you have to learn the framework and you're not, in, you're going to have to learn HTML, CSS, and JavaScript anyway. So now you're just tacking on a framework and they don't hide the complexities of those three. It bleeds through all the time. So now you just got four things to learn instead of three, which I, I agree with that part of it. He's, he's right. You can't just learn the framework. You have to learn the other things too. But he just then says, we don't need this. What we need is shims, a good like ES6 transpilation, and then just using what's in ES6 and, and web components by themselves and just writing good JavaScript. That's what he says. So discuss. No, that's <laughs> not what you need. So like Backbone was great, right? And I mean, it, it served a huge purpose and everyone was able to build their own custom framework. But unfortunately, you had to build your own custom framework and everyone's backbone implementation looked different than everyone else's backbone implementation. And when you'd walk into someone else's code, it looked completely different than anyone else's because it didn't come with anything besides some, you know, basic layering stuff. And so you had to go get all of your own other pieces and everyone got different other pieces to go onto it. And a framework kind of normalizes out the Frankenstein of the framework building. And so I kind of disagree with the statement that frameworks need to go away. Even with all the beautifulness of ES6, I still think frameworks have an important part 
in JavaScript apps. The, the, uh, the other thing is, is that, you know, every, every language is kind of in flux. I mean, JavaScript's in flux. That's why we have ES6, you know, it's getting better. Ruby's getting better. Objective-C is going away. So all of this stuff is changing. And as the languages get better, all that really does is enable people to do more stuff. But the way that they do more stuff is they contribute to libraries that abstract away the ugly pieces and, and make some of this stuff easier to deal with. And so even though you can't completely abstract away things like the DOM, HTML, CSS, JavaScript, you know, any of the other stuff, you can't completely abstract away some of the other pieces and the impedance mismatches between them. We need these libraries and these frameworks to make the pieces that we can easier or automatic. It, it just makes programming so much nicer. So I don't think that you need a framework for 100% of projects. But if you're building something that is kind of like something that someone else has built, I think <laughs> it will save you time in the long run. I, I think the key phrase you said, Chuck, is, well, the key word is abstraction. Um, yeah. And if you don't use a framework, you're depending on the platform itself to provide your abstractions or your own brain to provide them. The platform provides some abstractions, but they're generally pretty low level. And your brain is probably bad. You might come up with one or two good ones for every 10 awful ones. Yeah. Well, if, if you're not using a framework, then you're creating a framework. Exactly. You're doing, you're doing one of the two because, you know, like every time I start with a little tiny, tiny thing, I'm like, I'm just going to make this one little demo that does this one. Little, and then no, because then I end up having to rewrite that in the framework because it ends up going into production. So I might as well just start out with, you know, if I'm doing a stupid little dinky one-page form to show off, I might as well just get clone my Angular template that I've already got, and then I take less time to write the little form logic, you know, to show to the client, and now, since I'm going to be building it for them anyway, it's at the right place to start. Yeah, I That's actually a blog post that Ryan Florence wrote. I'm not saying you, I mean, you can come up with the same idea separately, yeah, but he wrote a, a blog post called You Can't Not Have a Framework that talks about that same idea. I think that was on, on the tip of a, a lot of people's tongues. Um, and I'm glad, I'm glad he wrote it. it uh, he wrote it just much more succinctly than I would have. I'm kind of given to loquacity and using big $5 words when a small one will do. Loquacity, so, dude. Yep. Yep. I went there. Now Shut I think I will hunt you down. <laughs> I got a 450. I guess I'm going to express a strong opinion on this, and I don't do that very often because I don't. Like I'm going to call you out as a liar, but okay. I'm going to express a, I'm going to express a strong opinion on this. I get an opportunity. Uh, I like run, I like running a consultancy because I get an opportunity to work in a lot of other people's code. I feel like I learn a lot from working in other people's code, and my experience is that everybody sucks at making frameworks. Is that everybody thinks they're better? It's like it's weird. We all talk about imposter syndrome, but when it comes to frameworks, we're like it primarily on the other end of the Dunning Kruger spectrum, where we think we're better at this than we really are. I think most people, generally, for at least a while as a developer, think that they're better at making frameworks than they really are. Or often, like you said, we get lulled into this thing of like uh, before we do this three or four times, we think, "Hey, this is just really small. I'll just do this as a one-off." But we're just not very good at building frameworks. And so most of the bespoke custom frameworks, and when I say most, I mean 100% of the bespoke custom frameworks I've worked in try to solve the same problem as a well-known, widely used framework much, much worse. And you wind up spending, things can take anywhere from two to ten times as long to accomplish in these, in, in a lot of these bespoke frameworks. That's been my experience. I've only been doing this for like, you know, a couple of years. So <laughs> it's, it's possible, you know, I reserve the right to be wrong about the the 100% part, 
but my experience has not been good uh, with custom frameworks. And so I really like jumping in with a group of open source people, if I, especially if I'm solving a shared set of problems. Well, then I can just hand it over to you, you know. Yep. I need help on it. Well, you know the framework. I know the framework. Go, go, go. I actually, this week I read an article. It was called Everyone Should Build a Framework. And there was some cynicism in the title that I didn't catch as I read the title, but I got it when I read the article. And it was like, you know, we all complain about the framework sucks this, the framework sucks that, and it's not, you know, flexible here, and there's problems there, and performance that. And and it says, you know, everyone should build their own framework. Like, they should get so mad at their framework, they should build their own so that when they get a third of the way through it, they can realize, oh, man, this sucks. Like, this is really hard work, and it's not easy to do. And and I, I don't know how you would approach, even with, like, the most robust libraries out there, even if web components actually worked today and, and all the other things were, like, a thing that you could count on. I don't know how you would structure your code without some sort of framework giving you some opinions to follow. I, and I don't know how your code would scale. And when I say scale, I don't mean performance. I mean across a team of 30 or 40 developers, if everyone could just, you know, pot shot their own conventions onto it and had no restrictions on it, I don't think your code would scale across the teams. And if it somehow did, I don't think it would be maintainable long term. So frameworks give you more than simply performance and and some glue in your DOMS to your models. I mean, they give you convention and sanity for long-term maintenance. So Yeah, and there may be people who would disagree with that, but I, I agree very strongly with that. I've had very good luck and good experiences. And yes, I do spend a lot of my time fighting my framework. It's not a mature ecosystem yet. I spend less time fighting frameworks in the server-side land where the frameworks are you know 5 and 10, 15 years old, uh, rather than JavaScript land where the frameworks are 2 years old or less. Yeah, sure enough. I think that's a feature of frameworks in general is that, you know, when you start out with it, you tend to do things the canonical way. You know, you go read like the Ember guides. And so you do things the way they tell you to do it in the Ember guides. And then eventually you get to the point where you need something that's a little bit different. You know, it's, it, it's not exactly the way the Ember guides do it. And so you wind up struggling against the framework a little bit because it, it's possible, but it's not friendly to that approach. And then you get to the point where you want to do something that's, you know, totally outside the framework. And so then you have to, you know, wrench it around, you know, bend the bars back a little bit so that you can get the room to maneuver to do what you need to do. I think everybody runs into that once you've been dealing with the framework long enough and you're comfortable with the way that it handles things. I just wanted to say maybe part of the productivity thing is with framework maturity, but it's also, and if your framework only existed for two years, you can only have two years of experience with it. So if you've been using Rails for 10 years and this client-side framework for two years, that's eight years experience difference that you have, not just that the framework has. So, And I'd that goes back to my question earlier of how people have four years of experience with Angular when it's only existed for two years. <laughs> this is a long troll. Yeah, in the like two years of... Uh, in a row. You know, I've, AJ, I've got two years of experience with Swift so far, and... AJ, yeah, you gotta years, let the troll go, bro. It's two yeah. years of man, of like man hours of experience with it because I, I read the book like five times. <laughs> That's right. Joe has been in Swift Groundhog Day for the last. Jameson's got four years, I believe. <laughs> I have. Are you I up to four I don't want to say anything about it. Wow. I got so grumpy at all the Swift jokes yesterday. <laughs> it's the same joke, right? There was only one Swift joke, just told them. every way. 800 yeah. million of them. <laughs> now there are 800 million and two of them because of this podcast. I think there's been at least 16 this episode, and I haven't heard them yet, so I'm enjoying them still. <laughs> uh, it's just I, the one joke. I should start an iOS pod- podcast and talk about that. 
I think the developers are glad to have a second joke after the two problems one. So, like, it was a little, I thought it was refreshing. There we go. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and do the picks then. Aaron, do you want to start us the picks? Yeah, I'm going to do one pick. For this, I apologize, but I've only got one. So when I was a kid, I read a book called Hatchet by Gary Paulson. I don't know if any of you guys read it. Yay, nay. Love, when I loved it. Yep. I did. Okay, I don't so remember anything from it. A lot of, a lot of folks, they loved it and I loved it. It was, it was awesome. And I found a book. The synopsis was like, Oh, this is a hatchet for adults. It's called The Martian. And the synopsis is astronauts on Mars, mission fails. They got to escape. And one guy gets left behind and he has, he's an engineer, luckily, and he has to figure out how to survive. And so this is, um, really hatchet all over again, except for instead of being like in the woods in Canada, you're, you're on a different planet. And it was really, really, really interesting. It's kind of like, um, a logbook of his stay on the planet. And anyway, super, super good book. So I recommend it to anyone who's, who's looking for a good read. And when you say engineer, you mean like mechanical engineer, because if he was a software engineer, he would just try and make a web page and then he would die. No, he was an Ember developer, and so he was going to be able to. <laughs> he was going to make it off of Mars based on that. It was pretty awesome. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Uh, awesome. Jameson, what are your picks? I have two picks. One is a talk from JSConf EU 2012 called JavaScript is the New Punk Rock. It's actually about the web audio API. And it's the kind of talk that I love because it couldn't be delivered as a blog post. It's a lot of live performance and live demos and interacting with the audience and stuff. And I also learned a little bit about the web audio API. So that was great. And the other one is littlereactbook.com. Somebody tweeted it out. And I've always had kind of a passing interest in React because it sounds awful and i want to understand why people use it <laughs> and this is a good introduction to to react and the problems it tries to solve so those are my two picks nice all right aj what are your picks okay so first off i think the first thing i need to pick is the amazon horse mask and the reason for that is because uh emoticons are dead and sarcasm is a lost art. So the horse mask is the only way to let people know that you're kidding if you're on Twitter. <laughs> okay. So I, for those of you that don't know, I started this big flame war and I didn't even realize it was a flame war until at the end it's like, what the hell, man? And then I was like, whoa, that was strong. Where'd that come from? And then I realized that I thought we were joking and turns out, but now I've got a horse profile on Twitter. You can follow me. If it's, if it's tweeted there, you know that whether or not I actually believe it, you're not going to take offense to it anymore. <laughs> and, oh, there's so many things I could pick. We've talked enough about Mario Kart, so I'll let that one lie as it is. And I think I'll, I'll save some of my other stuff for next time, but I'm going to pick Chance.js. Chance.js is awesome because, and, and I know everybody else has known this for like forever, but I just found out about it, so excuse me, but it's awesome because you give it a seed and it will give you random data based on that seed. And, and it has like lots of things like phone numbers and gender and titles like Mr. Mrs. Doctor uh, names. It's got all sorts of just fun little shortcuts in there that you need. But when you're doing your testing and you want to test on some random data, you can get the same random data every time. So, you know, your, your mocking and your testing will go a lot smoother because you're, you're getting the same fake password every time because you 
you paste it around a seed. And so there's this other site that I picked once before that's randomuser.me. And it, it, I was using it and it went down. And that, that made me sad. I guess I shouldn't have been using it the way that I was, but well, I was. So I, I had it um, generating some random profiles on a, on a test site and it went down for like a day or two. And so I didn't have my random users. And so I used Chance.js to build a random user service. And so that it just was a happy story. And I was super happy because it was random, but it was only, it was testable random. Yes. Huzzah. All right, Joe, what are your picks? All right, I'm going to pick three things. My first pick is going to be the real recently plural site launched a course on Ember, of all things. And so it just happens to serendipitously coincide with this podcast. So I'm going to pick that course. If you're looking to learn Ember, that's a great way to do it. I'm also going to pick the movie Maleficent. Went and took my whole entire family. We had like 12 people, extended family and friends, went to see Maleficent on Saturday, and it was awesome. I absolutely loved it. Great movie, totally worth your time. And then lastly, I'm going to pick the board game Lords of Vegas. I'm not sure if I've picked this in the past. I played it at a board game convention a few months ago and had an absolute blast because it actually involves rolling lots of dice, so it's a little bit like playing in Vegas, except you're actually playing like a regular old board game like Settlers of Catan or something like that, but you just have a lot of dice rolling and they really incorporate the theme of what Vegas is like into this game where you try to build casinos on the strip and try to gain, you know, make more money and get a bigger monopoly than your competitors. And it's a super fun game and I really enjoyed it. And there's already a expansion pack out for it. So that'll be my third pick is Lords of Vegas. That sounds like so much fun. I've got a couple of picks here. The first one is it's a library that I've been playing with for a client of mine. Um, it's called dc.js and it incorporates D3 cross filter, which is something that's written by Square and, you know, a couple of other things. It's a charting library and all the charts are kind of, it connects them. So you select something on one of the charts and it shows you that segment of the data on all the other charts. It's really awesome. And, uh, it, it took me a little bit of work to figure out how to you know, get everything to plug together, but I've just been insanely happy with it and I'm probably going to use it on other projects. The second one is a book or I've been reading uh, Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters. So if you're a dad and you have daughters, there's just so much good stuff in there. It talks about some of the scary stuff out there, you know, with the influences that your daughter has to deal with and, and how you as a dad can kind of uh, be an influence to, to help your daughter make wise decisions. I uh, just... I've really been enjoying the book. And then I want to pick the Ember Guides just because uh, they're they're a handy way to kind of pick up some of the Ember stuff. And uh, finally, there's a dice game. Joe's pick kind of made me think of this. It's called Left, Right, Center. And it's a really simple game. We were playing it with my kids. Basically, you roll the dice and then um, you have tiles or, or chips and you put the chips in the middle or right or left. And whoever winds up with chips at the end wins. It's, it's, so it's a simple game, but it's a lot of fun, and uh, we've been enjoying that. So I'll put a link uh, or in the show notes for that as well. Brandon, what are your picks? Okay, uh, so quickly, uh, my first pick would be we talked a little bit about uh, Router.js. I think people generally uh, recognize Ember's router as best in class, even though, if I may continue to emphasize, Alex Machineer is literally the worst human being on the planet. It's a great, <laughs> great routing library, and it resolves promises for you. It does a lot of great stuff. So that's my first pick. 
please check it out. If you're doing stuff that doesn't have a router built into it or do, you, does routing that doesn't meet your needs, it's um, we've had a lot of fun integrating that into Backbone and just not as much fun in the rest of Backbone. Second pick is uh, Philips Hue. Um, we had a big meetup here recently, and my partner Charles gave a talk where he did a bunch of cool visualizations uh, using data binding and then bound it between servers with WebSockets and then bound it to the Philips Hue. Uh, it was a color picker uh, that had a bunch of color visualizations and then had lamps all around the office changing their color based on what he was doing in Ember. And it was really fun, really dorky. And I just want to say it's a great way to exercise the power of $200 to make light bulbs change color. So if you find yourself with that specific set of capabilities and needs, $200 can turn into, you know, cool light bulbs. And then lastly, uh, I would say Zelda, A Link Between Worlds has been, has completely consumed my thoughts. I haven't played video games in, well, let's see, I have a five-year-old, so in five years and uh, bought a 3DS recently and Zelda A Link Between Worlds is, I don't know if it's just because I've, I've been Stockholm Syndrome after so much time in iOS gaming, casual gaming land. But people are saying it's the best Zelda in many years. And I think it was, uh, I just, I finished the game the other day and just was like, wow, Nintendo, well done. Thank you. It was a beautiful experience. So highly recommend that as well. And those are mine. Very cool. Well, if people want to find you, if they want to hire your consultancy to make their backbone easier, uh, where do they go? Or if they, yeah, if they have an, if they have an unruly cat, we just really will do anything. So I'm, I'm Tev Viking, T-E-H Viking on Twitter. The consultancy is at frontside.io and uh, check us out. We're, we're pretty good at this Ember stuff and we really like it. But mostly, seriously, if you have any, if you have any cats that you just cannot, cannot tame, uh, we're, we're ready to move into the cat salting space. Very nice. All right. Well, I guess that's it. We'll wrap this up and we'll catch y'all next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit c a c h e f l y dot com to learn more. Do you wish you could be part of the discussion on JavaScript Jabber? Do you have a burning question for one of our guests? Now you can join the action at our membership forum. You can sign up at javascriptjabber.com slash jabber, and there you can join discussions with the regular panelists and our guests. 